I'm Jody Nisnik, and you're listening to So Much More. In John 16, 12, Jesus stated, there is so much more I want to tell you. He then pointed to the spirit as the one who would come, who would further his teaching by bringing his word to life for us. So much more creates space for God to reveal his truth through his word. Today, I'm excited to have Dr. Sandra Glan with me as we have a conversation around Matthew 26 and what the Lord is teaching her. Dr. Glan is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and she's the author of quite a few books, both fiction and nonfiction. She's also a journalist and a speaker, and she loves to use her voice to advocate for thinking that transforms, especially around the topics of art, gender, sexual intimacy and marriage, and the first century backgrounds as they relate to gender. I have always appreciated the way that she not only researches, but also thinks. And so I am so delighted to share her with you today. Welcome, Dr. G. It's so good to have you on the podcast today. So much. I can't wait to talk with you. Well, um, tell me a little bit more about you. I kind of gave your professional bio, but help us get to know you just a little bit better. The personal side, I'm a fifth generation Oregonian. My ancestors came across the country in a Conestoga wagon. I adore dark chocolate. I'm uh, a convert to cats. I was married 16 years before we, my husband's a cat lover. I'm a dog lover, but in a moment of weakness on his birthday, I gave him and he dashed out before I could change my mind. So we have two cats, which I had to corral out of the room today. Uh, I'm the, so I'm the wife of one husband and the mother of one adult daughter. I love that you are a convert to cats. I will never be a cat convert because I am deathly allergic to them, but they are very cute from afar. (laughs) Promote maintenance, which is really great of my life. Yes. Yes. And I have a very high maintenance dog. And so I could definitely go for the low maintenance pets. (laughs) Um, Well, we did this uh, passage in Matthew 26 as an imaginative prayer meditation scripture experience. And so this passage details the arrest of Jesus, which quickly leads to his death on the cross. And before we dive in though, I want to just give us a reminder of the passage. So let me read it for us. One more time. So this is Matthew 26 verses 47 through 56. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12 arrived with him, a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. 
Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Okay, so again, we did this as an imaginative prayer experience. One of the reasons why I wanted to do that is because this is a very familiar passage. If you've been walking with Jesus any length of time, you've likely read this in the different gospels even. And so it's pretty familiar. And I think when we can slow down and imagine and let the scene come to life in a new way, it helps us perhaps enter into a familiar passage in a new way. And so Dr. G, as you did that, what did the Lord help you notice in this first kind of reading as you let the scene unfold in front of you? What really stood out to me was the kiss. I think of Psalm 2, which is focused on the king, the coming king. And there's a line in there that says, kiss the son. And the irony that Judas has kissed the son, but in the words of Michael Carr, that's not what a kiss is for. And just the irony. Um, and there are different ways of kissing the son. And one's a kiss of betrayal and one is a kiss of worship. And I think it's so interesting then we're later told over and over, God's people are told in the New Testament, uh, greet each other with a holy kiss. Mm. So it almost it's almost like it infuses with new meaning or redeemed meaning this uh this thing that happened that should have been affection and instead was an act of betrayal yeah judas really twists so many things as he it yeah it was interesting even as i was reflecting on this passage before we got on realizing that jesus is the one arrested but judas is actually the criminal here you know he's the one that's stolen and done things wrong Um, And so Jesus is unjustly accused, but I love how you hone in on this beautiful thing that gets twisted, this kiss. So isn't that what it does? Like it's, it takes anything, whether it's food and gluttony, whether it's sex and porn, whether it's kiss and betrayal, right? Oh gosh. Yeah. That's perfect. It takes a good, a good and, and warps it for evil. So what the enemy does. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's hard for us sometimes to discern where good turns into evil. Yes. When we've moved from something that God actually gave us to delight in, and then all of a sudden it becomes the idol and it has power over us. Um, yeah, that's good. So tell me a little bit more about kind of moving into this passage really honing in on the kiss. Where did you go from there? From there, I went to um, other another passage, uh, you know, that looks at this same narrative, actually gives a name to the person who got his ear cut off, was Malchus. 
And from there, I kind of went to the mindset of Peter and what this was all like from Peter's point of view. And Peter has really good intentions. And he uses violence because he thinks he has to defend Jesus by violence. And I, there's a poem, uh, a good friend of Madeline Langall, Lucy Shaw, who uh, founded Shaw Publishing as a poet, award-winning poet. And I remember years ago, the first line of one of her poems was, I met a Malchus once. And she went on to describe someone who had been deeply injured by someone who claimed to follow Christ. And from there, it went to where have my good intentions done harm to the kingdom, done harm to the Lord in my zeal, thinking that it's up to me to defend God. Um, where have I actually had the exact opposite effect by repelling people? Um, and so I thought of, I thought of the sword. I thought of, honestly, I, I thought I, you know, I live in Texas and how, much talk in Christendom there is about protecting ourselves with the sword, the guns, and, uh, you know, contrasting that in my mind with a, a UN peacekeeper I know in Kenya who refuses to carry the gun he is issued wow. and is known for not carrying it. He shows up in intense situations and is purposely vulnerable as a Christ follower. And so he is known as a righteous man and he knows he might die for that choice. And just the contrast was pretty stark. And just Jesus saying, you know, my, I don't need your sword to defend me. Can God defend himself? Yes. Do I need to resort to unholy means to defend God? No. In fact, I'm doing the opposite when I do that. I and we, both both my actions in the body of Christ, and we think we have to resort to wrongdoing, uh, whether it's stretching the truth, whether it's an exaggeration of a testimony that happened, whether, you know, whether it's actual violence, I mean, that whole spectrum of God does not need me to defend him. He needs me to be righteous, uh, even at cost. Yeah. I keep thinking sometimes we even are quote unquote justified in the defending, yeah. you know, like, the yep. UN peacekeeper would be justified showing up with yep. his weapon. And yet he's choosing to lay it down because he's trying to do something different. And I think was Peter justified in, in cutting off the ear, you know, or trying to defend Jesus with a sword perhaps. And yet he wasn't because Jesus was saying, no, I'm doing this a different way. And I think I mean, even just what you said, I think there's so much to think about and process in how are we living in this world? What do we present to people around us that aren't believers or perhaps that are believers as we throw our shoulders back and, and say, no, this is, I claim this as mine and I'm going to defend it. And I feel like that's happening a lot and it's leaving kind of a sour taste in many people's mouths about who our Jesus is and what he's actually come to do. You know, the Christian tradition has two millennia of thinking about violence. And for many centuries, the, the mindset was, I would rather die than someone send somebody straight to hell by killing them, even if they're breaking into my house. I know I'm going straight to heaven. And 
I, right. I mean, again, I am not saying I don't have a legal right to defend myself, Absolutely. but my, you know, the U S constitution is, is not scripture. (laughs) I'm not saying it's biblical. I'm just saying it's not our ultimate authority. Okay. That's profound. I have never had that thought before that I would rather die than some send someone straight to hell. I mean, that actually just like rose up a lot of fear in me. Like how would I respond in a, in a really crucible moment like that? And I think that gives us something to think about when we're really settled in who we are, where we're going, we can respond in the moment a little differently than perhaps if we're really clinging to this world and the comfort of our world. And our rights. <laughs> and our rights. Yes, our rights. Okay, so you're kind of imagining this whole scene now from Peter's perspective. Is that correct? Correct. So tell me then what happens next for you? What happens next to me is when I start talking to Jesus about saying, I'm sorry, when I have had such a high view of myself that I thought you needed me to do something and I have done damage to the kingdom or, and, and I, and I sensed, you know, in a sort of nonverbal way, uh, I won't, I don't want to attribute it to the voice of Jesus, but I sent, I sensed a, an urging to go back to the text and look at what was the context that got us here. Because the passage you read starts with while he was still speaking. So I wanted to know, okay, what was he saying? And he had just come for the second time to say, are you asleep again? And so I'm picturing that from Peter's point of view of busted. I can't even stay awake. Um, But then sort of shifting to Jesus's, he is already feeling alone. He's already feeling like the, the ones who aren't the betrayer. He knows Jesus is, uh, Judas is going to betray him, but the ones who really are committed to him and are with him and have, have, have stayed with him while he's in the garden have fallen asleep, not once, but twice. So he's already feeling as alone as any human can feel. And then he gets betrayed. And so he's, he, the, those who love him, who truly love him, but still mess up, have left him feeling all alone and abandoned. And in the context of feeling abandoned by God's people, mm-hmm. he gets betrayed by one who isn't one of God's. And just thinking about so often, that's what leads to reconstruction. It's God's good people have done horrible things, whether it's cutting off Malchus's ear, thinking you're doing something good or whether you have, by your negligence, abandoned. And if that weren't enough, then you get betrayed. And it, it, you know, it's enough to just say, God, I, I don't believe in you anymore. And God isn't the one who does the abandoning or betraying here. This is the people, either the people who name God or the people who pretend to uh, to claim some sort of association. And I think so often when we think of the the crucifixion, we think only of the death as the thing that agonized Jesus mm. so much. And it wasn't just the death, horrible as it was. It's, you know, I, I have a good friend who's working on the just the suffering of Jesus starting from day one, you know, of the, of the impregnation of Mary, but I'll pick that up in the garden. 
and say, these are people he has lived with for, you know, a couple of years yeah. or more. And could they not stay awake for a couple of hours right. while he's sweating so much as like dry. He's having, you know, he's having a panic attack, if you will. I mean, he's, he's just sweating with grief and trauma and fear um, and resignation. Mm. All of that for you and for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And these were supposed to be his closest friends, his best friends, the, yeah. the one group of people that yeah. should have stood by him and their humanity and their weakness overtook them. And yes. And add to that, did Peter not get my teaching? Oh. Like I am here at the end getting ready to say goodbye. This should be his final exam. And he doesn't get that my kingdom is not of this world. Like, yeah, really? And Peter's just also recently declared, hey, they may leave you, but I will die with you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm your guy. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah. And then he falls asleep and then this happens. And, and then finally the passage ends, the disciples deserted him and fled. Yeah. Oh, oh. Right. And here he stands then in the arms of the enemy and there is no one left around him. So I appreciate your um, saying earlier that, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to put words in Jesus's mouth. And I think that's a caution that I always give people when you do this kind of experience and you try to enter in and have a conversation in your imagination with the Lord to really weigh any words, any kind of feeling premonition against the character of God, the known word of God, all of those things to make sure um, we handle things appropriately, especially when we feel like God is saying something to us, but our God is a really personal God and he does have things to tell us. And he does have things he wants to expose and reveal to us through his word Um, so I appreciate that you said that. So thanks for, um, just holding that tension really well for us and modeling that for us. Um, anything else? Yeah. One more thing then to go to Hebrews, we have a high priest who is familiar with our weaknesses. And this is the one now in the, at the right hand of God, praying for us, advocating for us. He knows how it feels to be abandoned. He knows how it feels to be deserted. He knows how it feels to be betrayed. And still he, you know, he trusts his father. His father is not the one who did those things. And, but he understands how we feel when, when humans do that to us. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that verse in. I think that is such a powerful illustration of just giving us peace and rest when it feels like everything is blowing up, when we feel much the same way, perhaps that we have been rejected, falsely accused, like you were just saying. Understood. And to know that we have a God that's not so far removed from us. He's standing up there shaking his head, (laughs) but instead he's beside, before, behind, around, within just surrounding us and saying, I know, I know. Been there, been there, been there. I know exactly how you feel. And so much more than a friend could ever say to us to have our God say that to us. 
it might even irritate me to have a friend say it. <laughs> like, I know how you feel. It's like, well, I don't know. Uh, but Jesus really actually, yeah, does. Yeah. yeah. To the end yeah. degree, like way more. He's He was complete, as you pointed out, he was the innocent one, you know, the most innocent person in the garden. <laughs> that's right. Arrested. Uh, I will never know what that's, that's like. Mm-mm. No. Yeah. Anything else that surprised you or um, just came to your mind as you did this process? I think the only, the only other thing would be Peter had really good intentions mm-hmm. when he cut off the ear. Um, and he had really good intentions when he showed up thinking he was going to stay awake all night. Yeah. And um, I had a friend one time who I asked her what her husband gave her for her birthday. And she said, he gave me an intention. He wrote me a note and said, I'm planning to buy you a bike, which he never did. <laughs> and, and I thought, oh, that, how often do we do that with oh. God? You know, like, here are my intentions for how I'm going to spend time with you. Here's what I'm going to do for you. And it's like, thanks for the intention. <laughs> start. I'd probably really but, rather prefer a real gift, not just an yeah, intended gift. <laughs> yep. Follow yep. through on that. But, you know, yeah, Peter had good intentions. I'm going to stay awake. I'm going to defend him to the death. I'm going to die with him. It's like, you are not. You're going to deny me. Yep. And even then the next kind of scene is he, he follows at a distance and he, you know, it's like, I get this little glimmer of hope for Peter as I, as he's, he kind of follows him and and goes and and he can see the trial kind of taking place and he's warming himself by the fire. And then this little young girl, a slave girl with zero standing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, him down. Hey, Takes I him. know who you are. You're with him. Nope, nope, nope. No. And then no, not only no. Let's add a curse to that. <laughs> no, yeah. Yes. Yeah, no. And so I'm like, oh, Peter, come on. And then I see myself in him. Well, Sorry. I think we're supposed to see ourselves in him. Uh, if, if we think that there's no Peter in us, like we're the ones saying, oh, I would never deny you. Uh, it's like we we are lacking in self knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so much, so much good stuff in Peter. Well, um, okay. I want to ask you another question. So I'm going to shift our conversation a little bit because you recently signed a contract to publish your dissertation work. And I know a little bit about your dissertation, um, but I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about it. Cause I'm really excited about this. I would love to. So the contract is with InterVarsity Press, uh, InterVarsity Academic, their academic side. As you mentioned, I do fiction and nonfiction and some trade, but this one is going to have the Greek and the Hebrew and the hard stuff. Um, the ti- The working title is Nobody's Mother. And it's about, it's addressing who is Artemis of the Ephesians at the time of Paul. And why does that matter? Well, in the book of Acts, you have this story of something that happens in Ephesus and there's this disturbance where everybody rushes into the, you know, into the amphitheater or the theater that's still there. I think Sting had a concert there um, and they fill it up and they're chanting for two hours. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. And we know from Homer, we know from Cleopatra and Mark Antony, like, Cle- you know, her temple is one of the seven wonders of the world. People are sailing from all over the empire to come here 
And, you know, the Cleopatra we know, her sister was murdered on the steps of the temple. Like it's it's really historically rooted. And so the, the disturbance is happening, happening because the Apostle Paul has been there for a couple of years and the gospel is starting to cut into the the financial benefit of the tourists buying trinkets from the temple, basically. And so Paul is already planning, St. Paul is already planning to go to Macedonia, but he leaves early. And uh, then we get the book of First Timothy, which is addressed to his protege, Timothy, in Ephesus. And he says, I left you in Ephesus to teach certain people not to teach false doctrine. And as I was working on my dissertation, I was doing it at the University of Texas at Dallas, looking at history and inscriptions and wanting to know who was Artemis at the time of Paul, who was this goddess. And if you just do a Google search on Artemis, a lot of people will say she's a fertility goddess. Um, and that's why we don't depend on Wikipedia, because it doesn't matter who she was in the fifth century BC, and it doesn't matter who she was in the second century AD. It matters who did people perceive her to be at the time of Paul. And all these words that are showing up in inscriptions at the time of Paul are showing up in the book of 1 Timothy. For example, she's called Soteria, which is the female form of savior. Mm. And normally Paul starts his letters with grace and peace to you. But this one, he starts with the defense of Christ savior. Mm. And right. So like, if you, if you see all these inscriptions, then, you know, he, when I was a kid, there was this commercial for kennel ration. My dog's better than your dog. My dog's better because it eats kennel ration. And I'm like, that's their mentality. My goddess is better than your goddess. My goddess is better than yours. Um, And so Paul's writing going, no, our God, our savior is better. And my question was, when we get to she will be saved through childbearing. And Adam was first and the woman was deceived. Is there an apologetic against the local cult goddess? That was my question going in. I came out utterly convinced that yes, he it's a first person, like a second person conversation. He's not writing to the whole church. In other words, it's a personal letter to Timothy. He's fighting false doctrine. This is the false doctrine that got him thrown out of town, or at least drove him out early. And all these words that have overlap and things like don't touch, don't taste, don't marry. People think of of the goddesses in the early centuries as being all about sex and temple prostitution. It's the exact opposite. They are into asceticism. They are into don't don't taste and don't marry and don't touch. And sometimes people say Paul couldn't have written that letter to Timothy because it's too into Gnosticism, which is it elevates, you know, the spiritual over the fleshly. And when you think about Jesus came in the flesh, that's a really big threat um, because Christianity dignifies the flesh, not, not not fleshliness, but like physical you know, resurrection of Jesus and the mm-hmm. incarnation of Jesus and, you know, the bodily ascension and he's coming back in the flesh. And so anyway, all of that to say, I was, I didn't know going in the answers to, is there a link to Artemis? And if so, does that help us understand what's happening? And I came away both convinced that it was, and also even more convinced that Paul wrote first Timothy, mm. because it's not that it's Gnostic, it's that Artemis worship was into all those things that lay the perfect seedbed for Gnosticism to flourish later. 
Okay. So this brings to mind a second question for me, because I think it's important to understand who the goddess Artemis is because Ephesus and, and, and the temple of Artemis is uh, like just casting a long shadow over so much of the writing, the book of Ephesians, Corinthians, and you know, I, I'm sure you could rattle off them off, <laughs> um, but I'm thinking, so how does that then help us understand the the issues that were happening, especially with women of antiquity, especially some of the passages that seem very confusing to us. So why is it important that we understand all that too and understand what women in antiquity, who they were, what they were doing so that we can better understand God's word? Yeah, great, great question. So I think a biggie is, uh, that's a real technical word there, biggie. Um, <laughs> I, when you look at the woman was deceived, there have been many through church history who thought that meant women are therefore more easily deceived than men. You know, let's just ignore the swimsuit edition of, of Sports Illustrated when we talk about, you know, what ways that Madison Avenue can hook men versus women. And, and that's not what Paul is saying. What, what's happening, I think, is if you go back to Homer, Iliad, Odyssey, you know, those early writings that give us background, Artemis has a twin and his name is Apollo. And, you know, who's born first? Artemis. And in that creation story, the woman has preeminence and she's first. And I think that all Paul's doing there is pulling out his Hebrew Bible and saying, let me correct your, this creation story with another creation story where the man was first and the woman was the one deceived. Mm. I don't think he's saying anything about a prototype of how women sin versus how men sin and, you know, making any sort of lasting principles about manhood and womanhood. He's just correcting a wrong creation story with a true one. And so what that does is it has an equalizing effect in, in a cult in which the woman is superior. And even if you look at the book of First Timothy, you have three different kinds of widows. There are so many single women mm. in an empire where that's really almost kind of illegal. Mm-hmm. There's so many single women in the church that you've got the widows that are going to be supported by their families. You've got, he wants the young widows to marry, which is the opposite of what he wants them to do in Corinth, by the way. Um, he wants them to stay single. But in Ephesus, young women marry, older women that have family are cared for. And the rest, we're going to basically give a church office, put them on the rolls, put them on the payroll, if they meet certain qualifications. Um, and their vocation is prayer. Wow. Okay. There's so many other questions that I want to ask you. And obviously I have some passion for the topic. (laughs) Oh, and I do too, as a woman who loves God's word and loves the church and wants to um, serve well and handle God's word appropriately. Like I just, yes, I have a lot of passion for this too. Sadly, (laughs) Dr. G, we have hit our time limit and um, I just, yeah. So tell me. Tell people where can they find you and when is this going to come out? Oh, that's a good question. It's due to the publisher at the end of September. So I'm going to guess maybe fall of 23. Okay. Um, you can find me at aspire to A-S-P-I-R-E and the number two.com, which is uh, pulled off of the verse aspire to the quiet life. Um, I love that. Well, I'll put a link in there um, in the show notes so that people can 
click that and find you easily. Thank you so much for making some time to be with us, Dr. Glenn. It was truly a delight to have you on the podcast today. Love talking to you. Thanks. Well, friends, I also just want to say that if you are enjoying this podcast, would you just do me a quick favor, take a moment to subscribe, share, review it. All of those things matter in just helping get this into other people's hands. So thanks for doing that. I also just want to thank you again for joining us on so much more today, because we do believe that Jesus has so much more to say to us. And this is just one way we're creating space to listen. I'm Don Hawkins, and I once heard Chick-fil-A founder Truett Cathy say, you can tell if a person needs encouragement, check to see if they're breathing. I'd like to invite you to my weekly podcast, Encouragement for You, featuring encouraging guests like Dr. Greg and Aaron Smalley, Dan Cathy, the late Dr. Frank Menrith, Josh McDowell, and more. To subscribe to my weekly Encouragement for You podcast, go to lifeaudio.com. That's lifeaudio.com.